So we're into like the third week, technically, of the, the sermon on Hebrews um, called Perseverance and Gratitude. And last week, I actually covered um, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3a. And, uh, and I'm not really positive, quite honestly, how long this series is going to take in light of the fact that tonight we are going to be done with Hebrews 1, 3b. So, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, for what it's worth, things will pick up as we move along. As many letters do, there's an awful lot of meat at the beginning of them. As a matter of fact, a lot of letters will kind of summarize the entire letter in the first opening few lines. And that's a little bit of what happens with Hebrews. And so, <clears throat> I've kind of pondered at different times of just how much I want to dig in on some topics that are covered later on, but I am... I'd like to err on the side of a little bit of redundancy, to be quite honest with you, because some of these ideas are, are kind of dense, um, thick, and, uh, and I'm kind of dense sometimes. Um, so uh, it, I need to go over this stuff time and time again. Um, and so I don't think that it uh, does us any harm to spend a little more time, because uh, what are we going to move on to? Just something else, right? Might as well stay here and dig in real deep, so I say. So last week, all right, last week we talked about Jesus the Son, He is, well, the Son. <laughs> He's the Son. He is the speaker of, on God's behalf to His people. He is the exact impress of God. He is the rays of God. This week, like I say, we're going to kind of build on a little bit on some of those same themes. Moving all the way into 1.3b, which says this. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I want to read that for us one more time, because it's so brief. So this is that one, the son, who is the exact impress of God after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. A couple of other just uh, comments I want to make out the, at the outset here. Um, this is one of those messages that if you are looking for some clarification, feel free to ask. If you want to argue, ask me later. <laughs> I'm good with that. This is a, a difficult topic. It really is. I mean, that's just a short little chunk of scripture, but there's a lot going on there, right? After he had provided purification for sins, it's kind of a big deal. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, we do have James and John, sons of Zebedee, arguing over who gets to sit at Jesus' right and Jesus' left. They want that position of honor. This is kind of an important place. This is an important text. But before we start talking about the right hand of the majesty in heaven, or even purification, I want to talk about <clears throat> sin. The word for sin here is hamartia. Is anybody familiar with the, with the term hamartia? Some of you may be. It's actually an 
archery term. Yeah, Sean and I were just talking about it last week. Oh, you were. Sorry. Yeah, hamartia. I, I don't know. Is that, I think that's what a, a carpenter has. <laughs> he thinks everything's a nail, and he's a hamartia. Dang. That's really bad. I'm sorry. That was hor- horrible. Where's the Hebrews joke tonight? Oh, goodness sakes. Totally slack. All right, go ahead. Why didn't the barista get tired? Oh, yeah. Hebrew, uh, <laughs> See, they're bad. All these Hebrews jokes are bad, bad. All right. So, hamartia. Let's get back to this idea. Sin is the English word translated hamartia. But it's, hamartia is an archery term. Does anybody know what that archery term means? Missing the mark that I already yes, said, or you just know it. Thank you very much. So, it's just simply that you, 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 you have a, a bow... And that you, you have an arrow, and you see the target, and you're trying to hit it, right? But you didn't. You just missed it. How many archers do we have in here? I was up at Tom and Lily's house a couple of weeks ago, and my goodness, we were shooting bows and arrows, and well, I wasn't so much. I was watching others do it, and Ryan, um, Ryan Hoover, Katie and Ryan, I don't know if you know them. Goodness gracious, this guy was like, bing, bing, bing. He's not a sinner, apparently, because he was <laughs> nailing that target, right? So he is, don't worry. We know him better than that. <laughs> but what about this idea? So, like, when you see sin, this is the most common word for sin in the New Testament. When, when you see just the English word, those three little letters, S-I-N, we really need to think, just missing the mark, that, that it's even sin when we're doggone it, we're aiming, we're trying. It's not just always flat out rebellion that's sin. We're trying to hit the mark, but we just can't seem to do it. It's sin. Even really, right? Like, I know, right? It's like, is that really how? That, some people say this How then can God be so angry with me? as to be filled with wrath and rage and condemn me to eternal death, even when I just was trying to get it right, and I failed. That was, is that okay? Would you do that to your children? Would you kick them out of the house because they were trying really hard and just missed the mark? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe I would. Some answer this seeming problem this way. They say that, uh, well, God, your creator, made you to be perfect. So he didn't create you to fail in obedience to him even when you were trying. He didn't create you that way. And I'll tell you, I think that there's a little something to that. There's an element of truth. But I actually think that maybe there's just a different problem. Sure. But, but I think that there's another problem going on here, quite honestly. 
Because we're not just talking about somebody getting in a little bit of trouble. We're talking about God having wrath. Maybe the problem has to do more with how we understand God's anger. Our understanding of God's character and attitude towards us, I believe, needs some transforming. A little bit like what we talked about last week. And if you remember the dream that I had as a little boy of my, dad's, my, my dad and my friend, or my, my friend's dad, is what I'm trying to say. How many of you were not here last week? Okay. <laughs> uh, the dream I had, uh, this friend of mine's dad bought some shoes, and the shoes didn't fit by the time he got to me, and so he took me to the woodshed and cut my toes off so that my sh- the shoes he got me would fit. And I was terrified of this man because of the dream, right? Like, the rest of my life, pretty much. I didn't see him much into my adult life at all, but I, I had this misconception about what God was like. And I wonder if maybe that isn't a little bit of what's going on here. Maybe we, uh, maybe we have a misconception of God concerning God's anger. I mean, God is angry with us at times. Yeah? Have you, anybody ever experienced maybe God's chastisement? He truly is not pleased with our rebellion, our injustice, our devouring of one another and caring only about our own pleasure. Even when we are trying hard to do the right thing, there's times when God is displeased with us and that truly does deserve judgment. However, and this is a big however, His anger with us is like the anger of a father not the anger of a tyrannical dictator. God calls us to repentance. He gives us a chance to be forgiven. In sending His Son, God reveals to us the heart of love that He has for all that He has made. He reveals in the Son that His love, His chesed love, if you've, that's a Hebrew term and it's a beautiful one. It refers to God's unquenchable, undying, covenant love that will not go away. God, in sending His Son, reveals that His chesed love for us is bigger than any anger or wrath that He has. We just simply must come to Him in repentance and receive it. So, In Christ, God makes a way for us to be purified from our sin. Part of the question here is, why would that be necessary? Why is it necessary that there is purification for sin? Can't God just forgive us? He's so much filled with love for us. Why can't He just say, nah, don't worry about it, no big deal? Can't He just say, yeah, you're just forgiven, it's fine. Why does Jesus have to be crucified and die? In the world of theology, this is the study of the atonement. How sin is dealt with and how we are forgiven. How many of you have heard of atonement before? Atonement theology. So we're going to get into a little bit of a theology lesson today. And I'm going to be quite honest with you. Um, 
as many years as I've spent studying, there is always a yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, when it comes to the scriptures and understanding deep things of theology, like about what we're about what we are about to talk about. It's almost as if God created it that way because maybe some of these categories are just too big for us to understand. And so he creates some ways for us to understand facets of the atonement. And maybe if we high-center too much on any one of them, we, we lose sight of the bigger picture. And at the same time, I'm just speaking from the heart as your pastor right now. At the same time... Um, I don't want to shy away from things that I do think are just wrong about certain interpretations of Scripture or certain theological perspectives that people have arrived at. I have two terms, so we're going to move forward. So this, again, is a conversation about what has happened in the atonement. There's two terms that I want to talk about. Propitiation, a great one, right? And expiation. And I will have some visual aids for us at some point here. Propitiation. Is there a, you got a slide there for just propitiation? It's an idea that hinges on a seldom used term in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, this term only appears three times. Helastatai is the Greek word. In non-biblical usages of this Greek word, it refers to a sacrifice offered to avert the anger of a personal deity. It goes something like this. God is really mad. He's ticked. And in order to be unticked, he must receive a sacrifice to appease his wrath. His anger must be averted through some sacrifice, or else the object of his anger will receive the full force of his anger. Someone has to pay, and until someone does, his anger is going to burn. He can't even look at sinners. And so a propitiation to appease this angry God has to be offered. Some of you are probably extremely familiar with this idea. Some of you are probably too familiar with this idea, so much so that maybe you had no idea there was even any other idea within the Christian world to look to. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. In this understanding, this propitiation of Christian atonement, Jesus is this propitiation for sin. He is the one who has turned away the burning wrath of God. Or as one pastor puts it, God's laser of white-hot wrath is pointed at you and you will receive the full force of it. His, he is so mad at you because you're a sinner, he can't stand even look at you. And until you have faith in Jesus, who takes your sin away in that sense, you are going to have to bear God's wrath. But by faith in Christ, that white-hot laser is pointed right at Jesus. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice in the sense of he is the one taking that wrath of God who can't stand you, after whom, once he's received Jesus, your due punishment, you can be looked upon 
you can be loved, you can be cared about, you can be in a relationship with God only after that. You'll find again this type of idea, this propitiation for sin in lots of church movements and many of them rely on this singular view of the atonement. Um, I hate to name names, but neo-Calvinism, neo-Puritanism, this is the, if you don't know what that is, that's all right. This is the view of the atonement. There's no other way to understand what God has done. He is just viciously mad, and until somebody appeases his anger, he's not going to relent. However, that's an awful lot of theology, in my opinion, that's built on an understanding of one term that's used three times in the entirety of the New Testament. Especially when we look a little closer at the word in the New Testament, and for that matter, in the Septuagint of the Old Testament, that is the Greek translation from the Hebrew of the Old Testament. When we look at this word, time, we find some really interesting, peculiar things, and I'm highly indebted to C.H. Dodd and his work for this perspective. In the scriptures, unlike pagan theology, unlike Greek and Roman theology, where God is the one being appeased by the sacrifice, in the New Testament and in the scriptures as a whole, God is actually not the one receiving it. He is the one doing it. He's not the object of the action. Or in other words, it is God that's doing the propitiating. If then, what is in mind with this idea of Pelastatai is a wrath of rooting sacrifice, then God is offering it to himself. In other words, God is really mad at you and at me, and he says, I can't stand you because you're a horrible sinner. I'm going to go and offer an atoning sacrifice to myself so that I now am not mad at you anymore. Does that make sense? Does it? I don't know. Uh-huh. Put yourself in time out. As a matter of fact, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that very idea of how this maybe does reflect the way that we parent at times. I am not convinced that it makes sense. I'm really not. Yeah, I'm not convinced. Let me give you an example. One of the three times that this word shows up in the New Testament is with the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You guys remember this one? The Pharisee is like, Oh, Lord, I'm so good. I'm so good looking. Thank you so much that I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you so much that I'm nearly perfect, if not perfect, at keeping your law. I am just all that in a bag of chips. 
After which, a tax collector stands up and he beats his chest and he says to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he won't even look up to the heavens. Jesus asks which one of these, when they went away, was justified. It was that second one, that tax collector, who went home justified before God. For he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The word mercy in the cry of the tax collector is halastatai. That's the word that people argue means a sacrifice to appease an angry God. However, if that is the idea here, then the tax collector is asking God to do something, to appease him on his behalf. He is saying, I am a sinner. Avert your wrath by offering yourself a sacrifice on my behalf. I'm not sure if that makes sense. I'm not sure if that's what is in view here at all. What the tax collector does seem to have in mind is simple repentance that relies on God's kindness, not his anger, that relies on his kindness in light of the fact that he has messed up, that he is a sinner. It relies on the kindness of God and the possibility of mercy. There seems to be no hint of averting the imminent wrath of God, not a shred of, I'm so mad at you, I cannot even look at you until someone appeases my anger. There seems to be no propitiation in view, even though this is one of those three total examples of Halastatai in the New Testament. I hope you're still with me. I'm going someplace with all this, I promise. So if atonement then, if the way God is dealing with sin is not just a matter of appeasing an angry God, then what is going on in atonement? What is going on in purification from, for sin? What is happening in God dealing with sin through sacrifice? Why, if it's not to appease an angry God, is it necessary? If the sacrifice is not an appeasement of an angry God's vengeance, then what is it? Has anybody heard any other options? And I'm not asking you to articulate them. Has anybody even heard any other options besides this God, just an angry God yielding a big wrath stick and he's about ready to smote you? And that Jesus takes it for you. Well, there are other options. There are other options. Expiation. Expiation is another option to understand the atonement. And the one that I believe to be closer to what's really going on. I'll be honest with you. We'll stop here for a second. I don't want to entirely poo-poo the idea of propitiation. I just think that it needs to have something balancing it greatly. Expiation. Unlike propitiation, expiation is the act of nullifying the effects of sin. And we are never told in expiation precisely how it works. That's a later question that church theologians have asked and one that every modern theologian seems to want to ask. This is a very modern question. Oh, you tell me I'm forgiven of my sins by the work of Jesus on the cross? I need to know exactly how that happens. And God says, I don't know that I'm going to be able to explain to you exactly how it happens. <laughs> Nonetheless, I'm totally convinced that this is what is in mind when it is said that the Son provided purification 
for our sins. Purification from sin for missing the mark. It shows us that God is not a God who is filled with wrath unto eternal death for missing the mark. Until somebody appeases his wrath, as though sacrifice is some arbitrary transaction that needs to be made. Rather, it shows us a God who wove into the fabric of creation death as a consequence for breaking our relationship with him. But, and this is really hugely important, whose love for us, not his hatred for us, not his wrath for us, but whose love for us that is so great that he is willing to take upon himself the consequence of sin and defeat it that we might have life. The effect of sin, the consequence, the wage of sin is death. Jesus has taken that consequence upon himself for the world and death is now gone. It's lost its sting. Can I get the slide up for expiation? Nullifying the effects of sin. I've tried and tried to come up with all sorts of different analogies, images, pictures of that. And every one I come to seems slightly problematic. But imagine the world as a big glass container, a big round sphere glass container. And it is filled with toxic smoke. And it was only filled with toxic smoke because we filled it with toxic smoke. And because God loves us, he sends his son to put his lips on a hole in that sphere and suck out all that toxic smoke so that we don't have to die. All we have to do is come to him with our little world, maybe, and ask him to suck the toxic smoke out of it, recognizing that we are the ones that invited it, and recognizing that it is Jesus who can remove it. The atonement then is singularly focused on God overcoming death on our behalf. And if you read through your New Testament, you will find that that is almost universal what is being talked about when atonement is mentioned. The only, the only time, and it's arguable if it's even there, where anything else might be in view is Romans 3.25. That does not mean God is not angry with us, as I've already said. He, he is at times. He's disappointed, he's frustrated, just like a human father is frustrated with his children, just like a human mother is frustrated with her children. God is frustrated with us at times. But again... His anger is like the anger of a father with his children. Not like that dictator that's going to club us to death if we don't do something different. His anger then is a manifestation of his love. Being angry like a father means that in his anger, 
He does not have to turn away from us. He doesn't have to shield his eyes. He doesn't have to turn the other way. He can't, he's not forced to run from us because we're dirty-faced sinners. God displays in Jesus that he has not done that. Either that or what we have is a father, creator father, whose son is entirely rebellious and nothing like his father. But we're told that Jesus, the son, is the exact impress of the father. It's not that we've sinned and turned away from God and then he's turned away from us. We've turned away from him, and he sent his son to us. And it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Just as that tax collector who beats his chest. Knowing that God is a merciful God that allows us to turn back to him, not the fear of an angry God. I get, I get how some pastors, some theologians, and some teachers become smitten with the idea of propitiation. I get how they really want to zero in on an angry God who is filled with wrath for you, and you better do something different or else. Like, I get that. I understand that. I failed as a pastor and as a leader going there at times. And it's always just like I do as a parent when I blow it, when I'm frustrated because my kids don't seem to be changing. Oh, the angry dad comes out then. And that works not. All it does is turns my kids into liars because now they don't tell me when they've blown it. Noah, today, this is my bad, not his. Well, maybe it's his too. No, it's mine. He decides that he's got an air conditioner in the window. He decides he's going to pry open the window. So he pries open the window and boom, out goes the air conditioner. Right? He knows, though, that I love him. He knows that I'm not going to scream and holler and freak out at him for having done that. And so he doesn't hide it. He doesn't close the window and shut the drapes. <laughs> he comes and he tells me, Dad, I opened the window and the air conditioner fell out. It's like, what were you thinking? <laughs> And then I think about this message. Right? And I'm like, well, was anybody hurt? No. I go to the room. I see it dangling by the cord. I think of uh, Happy Gilmore. <laughs> and, and Seinfeld. <laughs> Watch those shows if you haven't seen them. You don't know what I'm talking about. And, and Noah starts crying. And I asked, I was like, Noah, how come you're crying? And he said, because I didn't want to disappoint you. I'm sorry that I did that. It's my fault. And I'm thinking the whole time, praise God, that he knows that he can both take responsibility for what he's done and own up to it and come to me knowing that I love him, that I know he's going to mess up. Because he, he knows that I'm not 
Well, <laughs> except for when I totally blow it and do not represent the character of Christ well in my life, he knows that I'm not going to freak out, holler, and scream at him. Because I love him, I, I was not going to end in white hot wrath pointed at my son. <laughs> Instead, I actually got myself extremely dirty going out and picking up the air conditioner and bringing it back into the house. And, um, I guess in some sense, atoning for my son's mistake. It was good. Look, it was dangling by the cord. Telling you. So I get, I get how pastors and theologians can be smitten with the idea of propitiation. Because leaders get fed up with how people do not change. They believe that if they will tell those who are stuck in sin that God in his white hot wrath is going to smoke them unless they change. Unless somebody pays the price. And they resort simply to the angry God theology because they want people to be different and they think if you just get really mad people will be different. And in that, I wonder if maybe we're not creating God in our own image. In the image of those of us that get mad quickly, thinking that it's going to bring about change. Pastors, theologians, parents, all of us probably at times get so filled with anger with what we see going on wrong that we imagine God must be too. But this angry God needing to be appeased theology motivates and seeks to motivate change by the fear of punishment. Which is honestly not real change at all. It might be just hiding rather than changing. I believe in the end this theology does maybe more harm than, it's, than good in its more extreme forms anyway. It's counterproductive to producing faith, which is what we need to truly please God. Listen, listen to this. 1 John 4, 16b through 18. And we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us. So that, while we, ha so that we ha will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because it is in this world that we are like him. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When you hear that, does that sound like propitiation, atonement? Does that sound like you better repent because God's got white hot wrath pointed at you? Sounds like, sounds like the opposite of that. Because that sounds like fear. But it's perfect love that God has for us that drives out fear. So then, if not fear leading to repentance, if not fear bringing about change, if not fear bringing about faith and following Jesus, then what? What? I already said it. It's kindness. It's kindness that leads to repentance. It's knowing that you have a Papa in heaven that will forgive you. 
Without that, we would close the drapes and pretend like the air conditioner didn't fall out of the window, right? I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 2.4, speaking to a bunch of people who are coming up with all sorts of reasons that God's wrath is going to come on the world. He says to them, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I don't want to, but I'm going to. No, I'm not. I'm going to read this. Isaiah 1, 10 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have, I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls, the lambs, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God does not in that say... Avert my anger with a sacrifice. He says, come, sinners, to me. Let me wash you. Sure, I'm angry, but do not let that push you away. My kindness is greater than my anger. Come to me. I will make you as white as snow. In order to be clean, we must come to God, a God who wants to make you clean. In order to come to God, we must not be terrified of him. So again, if not with a fear of punishment, how do we motivate a change in direction? How do we motivate repentance in ourselves and in our brothers and sisters around us? I want you to be honest with yourself for a second. What leads you to repentance. If the only thing that leads you to repentance is the fear of punishment, then you are far from the heart of God and the gospel. And I don't mean that in a guilt sort of way. I mean that in a way that invites you to inquire into the heart and nature of God and the destructive nature of sin. What motivates us to change is our eyes have been opened to the destructive nature of sin. If it's simply that you don't want to be punished, 
you're not going to have a whole lot of success in your walk with Jesus. If that's the only thing that is transforming you, if the only thing that you wake up in the morning and say, man, my goodness, I hope I don't sin too much today, because if I do, God's going to be really mad at me. If that was the only thing motivating you, you're kind of missing the mark right there. It's about loving people and caring about people. You're just, if you're not sinning, then you're just not doing it so that you don't get punished. has to transform us is the recognition of the corrosive and destructive nature of sin. And that we have been transformed to want to love. We do it for the sake of others, not for ourselves. I guess it simply would be put that we fall so deeply in love with God, so deeply in love with Jesus, that we want to walk with Him. In Jesus, God, who is love, conquers death. Jesus' sacrifice reveals God's love for us. And His love is not just a matter of thwarting His anger, as if God is so petty as to need thwarting. Jesus' sacrifice is God's word to us, that he loves us so much that he is willing to take death, the wages of sin, upon himself, and in doing, overcoming death itself and making a way for us. It's always God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's never the fear of punishment that leads to a transformed life. Jesus reveals to us, impresses us with the image of God who is love and invites us to repent and to receive a great salvation. God loves you. Not always happy with us. But his love is greater than his anger. So much greater than his anger that he sucks that toxic death right out from your midst, nullifying the effects of sin. After offering purification from sin, he sits down at the right hand of a majesty on high. The right hand of God that offers us deliverance, salvation, expiation. The right hand of God that is that place of honor. The place, figuratively speaking, from which God dwells in his celestial temple. The God who is love. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, sometimes I'm just overwhelmed by the bigness of you and how unsearchable your ways are. At the end of the day, I just thank you so much for sending your son. We don't have to know how every last little facet of your atonement exactly works. But let us never miss that you are a God 
who loves your creation. That you are a God who will take upon death our punishment, our wages, upon yourself. And in that you reflect your great love for all that you have made. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impart in us an ability to see the world the way that you do. And instead of looking upon the world angrily when we see them failing, that we would instead have your heart. That we would have your eyes, Heavenly Father, that would want to go and reflect your love by taking up the ramifications of sin in other people's lives, standing in the gap, being there for people. Father, we just love you. Praise you. Thank you for the life that we have in you. Thank you that you're not an angry God, that you're the God who is loving. Praise you. Amen.